noticed, I've even had some young guys that are very honest and said, you know, I would, I, all of the guys that I really like are not dispensationalists. And I can't go there. I can't go to amillennialism because I don't see it in the text. But then I jokingly said to them, but, but all the cool kids are going to amillennialism. And I said, yeah, exactly. That's why I want to go. It's not that they've been won over by exegetical truth. It's because the popularity of the crowd that has gone that way, not one has come to me and said, I've, got, I've just got to change my doctrine because I see it in the text. It's never been that way. It's only the cool kids. Yeah, 50 years ago, the dynamic was moving in our direction. Yes. And so we got a lot of people in our movement that, you know, read the popular stuff and all of that, but they really didn't understand their stuff. Uh, but I think within the IFCA, uh, most people did and things like that. But I'm speaking with a, a broader uh, audience and things like that. But um, there, there are, I find, when you get out and teach our view, more people are open to it than not. Mm. Uh, lay people, especially, yes. you know, because it makes it makes sense. Sure. When you read your Bible, you know, it, it seems to make sense. But you have all of this uh, ideology is stronger than reality, yeah. uh, historically. Yeah. And so you have all of this, and now look what's happening with the Reformed people. Uh, they're moving toward liberalism, mm -hmm. many of them, uh, within... Uh, a certain camp, and I would guess that that's probably not going to be quite as popular. But you have this reductionist approach, you know, like at uh, Southern Seminary and all those that are kind of popular. Uh, it's it's a philosophical approach to Scripture rather than exegetical. Sure. Yeah, nobody comes to postmillennialism by reading their Bibles. Right. right. That's right. You have to be trained. You have to be taught to figure out how to see the, those plans, those ideas into the text. Um, but you can read your Bible and come out of that with a very, very similar, maybe have to know some nuance you wouldn't see there. But but just naturally reading the scripture, you come up with much of what we believe. Yeah, the early church was overwhelmingly premillennial, except in one area, and that was in North Africa. And uh, people forget that. Uh, Athens, the Greek philosophers, by the time of the first century had moved from Athens to Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt was the center of Greek philosophy. And they're the ones that rejected premillennial, the chiliasm or premillennialism of the early church. And uh, eventually Augustine being from North Africa, you know, won out. Uh, and as a result, you know, that had a great impact. Yeah. Yeah. We actually have a school uh, uh, that you need to go down to the second floor to the displayers in the area where Origin and all of that stuff was taught. We have one of our affiliated schools in the area now teaching what we believe, teaching biblical doctrine. So uh, go check it out because there is great influence happening in that place. Yeah. Mike. I would just say, I think it's helpful to understand, too, that Reformed theology strength is mostly in regard to the doctrines of sin and individual salvation. Mm -hmm. and there is a lot of contributions the Reformed community makes in that. They're not strong, though, on the end of the story, that fifth part of the story, which is eschatology, restoration of all things, kingdom, nations, Israel, day of the Lord, those sorts of things. So I think there's a sense in which we can say 
you know, appreciate Reformed theology in the areas of its strengths, but when it comes to the storyline towards the end, that's where dispensational, it's not the only contribution dispensational makes, but that's what makes a very strong contribution, where things are moving in history. So I like to say dispensationalism is very strong when it comes to the actual covenants of the Bible. Abrahamic, Davidic, new, it's strong when it comes to kingdom, Israel, nations, those sorts of things. So what we have to say is, we are addressing major parts of the Bible storyline in a way that's more compelling and more detailed than what others are doing. Yeah, people forget that the first hundred years of dispensationalism, everybody were Calvinist. And uh, in fact, there are many instances of people who became dispensational and became a Calvinist at, at the same time. And I've got an article in, in that journal that our school has uh, showing the Calvinist heritage of dispensationalism. And uh, primarily uh, the, the biggest dispensationalists in America were mainly Presbyterians. And I, Dallas Seminary was founded by Presbyterians. Uh, they're Princeton grads and all of this kind of stuff. And somewhere along the line, <clears throat> now so many are becoming Arminian uh, who are dispensational. So the average, you talk to like a guy from Southern Seminary, and he's shocked. I was talking to some at a conference the other day, and he was shocked to know that dispensationalism had that Calvinist heritage <laughs> and stuff. But, you know, I, I remember it. All my professors at Dallas were all, uh, almost all had been a Presbyterian at one time or another. Uh, they kept reforming, huh? They kept well, reforming. <laughs> ever reforming church you know but and that's where you had the biggest uh conflict between dispensationalism and uh covenant theology was within the presbyterian church and stuff like that now as you had the first ever prophecy conference in uh 1876 at an episcopal church in new york city sponsored by the the pastor was an Episcopalian, you know, and stuff. So uh, they're, they're long gone from that, but that's because they're, they're not as conservative as they used to be overall, but conservatism uh, was totally premillennial. There were some that weren't dispensational, but most were. And in around 1925, the Pentecostals started adopting dispensationalism. So they were the first group uh, to not be Calvinistic, uh, this, uh, dispensationalist and stuff like that. And so that's kind of diluted it, I think, over the years. Uh, but our tradition is from the Calvinist dispensational premillennial tradition. It's always good to know our history. Absolutely. Do you have a question? Yes, one of the unique features of uh, pre-trib rapture was the imminent uh, return for the church. Uh, how would you address the objections by those that say imminency was not really believed uh, because of uh, the prophecy that Peter had to die before, and he's part of the church, he would have died before the rapture, so there couldn't have been imminent in his lifetime, or the worldwide preaching of the gospel by the church, how it could the rapture be imminent if that was to take place. Okay. Well, 
that has been an objection, but obviously Christ could have come back at any moment after he left. That does not destroy imminence. The fact that, uh, you know, you have the prophecy about John, you know, and those, ki- those kinds of things. So obviously uh, Christ wasn't going to come back, but it's, it, on the other hand, scripture t- still teaches that he could at any moment and that we're Actually, the focus is on us expecting him to come at any moment or what was the term waiting for him from heaven. That's the focus is on uh, our attitude toward that fact. But now that we're past (laughs) the first century, there's no doubt, uh, you know, that he could come at any moment. I don't know if you'll have anything to add. Well, that has been worked through pretty carefully by some uh, theologians in that regard. I mean, it's been shown what these events might have been. You, of course, couldn't have had a rapture before, in my opinion, Acts chapter 10, where you have the Jew, Gentile, and Samaritans all together. uh, And you didn't have uh, the scriptures on imminency until as time went along as well. So there's, and then there's some of the things that are objections that actually could have been uh, fulfilled in connection with AD 70 and so forth. So this has been thought through pretty carefully. Uh, When it's all said and done, uh, those things, like you say, are already gone. And and the scriptures teach eminency. So that's where we are today, definitely, in uh, learning. But, you know, I have other material on that you know, in my notebook someplace. So anybody wants to ask me about that in more detail, I could do that for you. And the IFCA's original doctrinal statement had the imminent return of Christ, which when it was founded, imminent meant any moment. And uh, if you look at the, uh, uh, like Trinity Seminary had imminent in it, and they redefined it they've redefined it since the 50s and 60s you see what i'm saying to be well near and people who do not believe in pre-tribulationalism simply cannot follow or account for eminence being taught in scripture that christ could come at any moment uh the fact that all of these passages talk about us waiting for christ who, who could that's where we deduce the doctrine of eminence from that that uh, he he's the, he could come at any moment and that is a huge problem in reverse for other people if they're going to properly interpret those scriptures and they they come up you know they just really have a problem dealing with that uh, the fact that you know they have to say Christ can't come at any moment you know, he may come in our lifetime or something like that, but that is, a, and that's something the early church believed by and large when they wrote about it. And that's why it's, it's unclear uh, if some were pre-trib or not, but so they're very, but they believe that Christ could come at any moment, which is a key, the key uh, applicatory aspect of pre-tribulationalism. Thanks. We have another question. Yeah, in uh, in Daniel twelve, it says that uh, 
knowledge will increase and men will run to and fro. And we see this, uh, I don't know, this is kind of an open-ended question. It may be too open-ended. I may not be direct enough. But we see the, the scientific community being little gods messing with the human genome and then doing some of those things that they really shouldn't be doing, messing with between species and things like that. So can you, do you see, do you, would you address maybe that idea? I know we're doing the other end as well, Romans 1. Somebody said worshiping creepy creatures or something the other night, um, where Mother Earth is also being worshiped as it was in the Old Testament days. But that dichotomy between those two things, maybe you could address and eschatological working? Well, let me just start with uh, the passage in Daniel. The passage in Daniel is discussing, you know, Daniel's told by the angel to, um, what did, how did they say it? Seal up it up, you know, and so some of the prophecies are, uh, were not, you know, haven't been understood because of the fact that Daniel, uh, the prophecies he received were sealed up. But it goes on to say, but in the latter times, people will understand some of these things and knowledge will increase. And it's about these prophecies. And I think the closer we get to that. So it's not about science or anything else. It's right. about the understanding of prophecy, the closer we get to the day of the Lord itself, you know, closer we get to the rapture. So that, that at least is where I would start on that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't agree with the implication of the interpretation of what you were saying. It's talking about, uh, as he's saying, the Jewish people in the last days are going to get excited. And the, the Hebrew term there is their eyes are going to run back and forth like across the page. You see what I'm saying? It's, it has, I remember the Lalonde brothers back in the 80s did a whole year of knowledge will increase and you know it increases every so often you know like every nowadays i think it's every few years or something and travel increasing you know so in, in our one lifetime we've gone from the horse and buggy to spaceships and all of that and that's a, a popular view out there in what i call prophecy land and uh, but that hebrew passage is not talking about that both the context as well as the idioms are talking about the Jewish people in the last days are going to be converted. They're going to get excited and their eyes are going to go back and forth across the book of Daniel, the pages, and knowledge will increase. They'll start understanding the book of Daniel is what that is saying. Uh, by the way, the book of Daniels, I've talked to, Many uh, Jew, uh, uh, in the airports, I often try to talk to Jewish people, you know, the, uh, the Orthodox. And uh, I've had probably, probably about a dozen times, and I've had like eight or nine of them say their rabbi won't let them study the book of Daniel. Common. They only study certain portions of scripture, you know, and the things. And they, you know, it's not like they're sitting there reading uh, reading the book of Daniel even today. I've heard of a, uh, I remember talking to in New York City, talking to a, a now 
Jewish believer who became saved as a result of looking at the uh, 70-week prophecy in, in Daniel 9. He started running the math on the 69 <laughs> weeks, and it takes you to Christ, and the Lord used that to bring him to salvation. Um, my question is just about uh, some of the criticisms that we receive as dispensationalists. <clears throat> One of the common criticisms that I hear from people who are antagonistic against dispensational eschatology, particularly the preacher of rapture, is that it promotes an escapist mindset that results in our churches and believers checking out of society, to the whole white polished brass and a sinking ship, and then that leads to the newspaper exegesis type stuff. How much of that criticism do you think is valid, and how can we better address the issue and have, help us to have balance as we just live in society? I would, I would say the issue is not, are we escapists, but it's like, what is the scripture teaching? Like, so we don't want to be more spiritual than God in Christ. And if you read Revelation 3.10, for those of you who kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you out of from that hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole earth. And the churches have been facing tribulation up till that time, up until the 90s. Then Jesus starts talking about that, you know, this hour that is, that is to come. So it's, it's not escapist to take Jesus at his word. And so the church is promised tribulation in this, in this age, in this world. You will have tribulation. That was going on with the churches of Revelation. But in the 90s, he says, there is this hour of testing that is to come. I will keep you out of it. First uh, Thessalonians you know, 1.10, Jesus who, who rescues us, delivers us from the wrath to come. If you read First Thessalonians 5, that wrath to come is the, is the day of the Lord. So first of all, I would just, because I understand that question, I've heard it too, but that, I think it's the wrong starting point. The, the, the starting point is not, aren't you being escapist if you think the church isn't going to go through that period? The issue is, what does God, the word of God and Jesus say about the church's relationship to it? So we do take seriously that for centuries, the church has faced serious persecution, but that hour of testing is specifically the day of the Lord. That's of a different quality. That is where the wrath of God is being poured out on an unbelieving world. And it's also a time where Israel is being brought you know, back uh, to salvation and uh, restoration. So the key is not, is this escapist? The key is, you know, what, what is the scripture teaching? And if, if Jesus says that's a promise, for those of you who kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you out of that hour. Who am I to say, no, Jesus, that's escapist. It can't be that way. We need to go through the tribulation. I, I like to say, don't be more spiritual than Christ. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of people that use the rapture as an escape. You know, or, you know, I wish the rapture would come so I wouldn't have to do X, Y, Z, you know. And so there are people out there that in our camp that think that way to, to some degree. And, you know, on a bad day, I think that way as well. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but the purpose, as he's saying, of the rapture is and I talked about that last night, is to end the ch temporary church age so that God can finish the unfinished 70th week of Daniel. And this is a, and people that bring these kinds of things up, it seems they never want to talk about the weaknesses of their view. Uh, no, really. Uh, it, it's all, it's like a, a anti-pre-tribber people come up with one thing they think is bad even though they have 50 problems over here in the view that they uh, adopted and things like that, but they never want to talk about those and things. But yeah, and it's not meant to be an escape from responsibility. It's meant, and but historically, people who believe in the preacher of rapture have been more engaged than any other set of Christians out there 
in evangelism and world missions, a much higher percentage of people who believe this have been engaged in preaching the gospel and doing all this kind of stuff. If I could just add also to that, to that uh, if you would, if we take a poll here of the people, where would you put on your list of reasons why you believe in the pre-tribulational rapture? Would it be to escape tribulation? Would that be the first one? I don't think so. Most of us are going to say, that's the time when we get to see Jesus and go on and so forth with that. Maybe down number 10 is, you know, we don't want to go through a tribulation. Of course, we don't want to do that, but that's because the Bible teaches that. So, but I don't think that's the motivation for believing in the pre-tribulational rapture at all. Yeah, tens of millions of Christians have died during the church age. You know, and we just happen to live in America. We see it coming to an end, apparently, in the United States. But the norm of Christianity has been persecution. And an average of 200,000 people I've read, I guess it's true, die every year around the world for their faith, basically. And uh, so are they trying to escape? You know, and a lot of them believe in the preacher of rapture. Yeah, so that's more of an American yes, excuse. It is. We're, we're seeing, uh, well, we as Americans who aren't suffering don't want to suffer at all, right. whereas all over the world, they are already suffering, and there is great hope in Jesus coming to take his bride. Well, I've, if somebody wants to suffer, I, I, I went to Saudi Arabia once, <laughs> and uh, I, I have a suggestion. Go to Saudi Arabia and go to one of the ancient cities where they chop the hands off and stuff and heads as well and and holler Allah is a wimp and I and you'll probably be persecuted yeah yes <laughs> next question and we don't suggest that you do that right just... actually <laughs> thank you for the clarification yes. <laughs> so I was fascinated by last night by something you said about Second Thessalonians two three, where the word apostasy might not actually mean a falling away from faith, but might instead be a direct reference to the rapture. And I went and I looked it up in Strong's and everywhere else I could find, and nobody else is saying the same thing. So I have a two part question. Part one is, do you have any resources that we could use to find more out about that? Um, that actually specifies more of what you're saying because that would be very helpful because I can't find that information anywhere else. And the other part is if indeed it is a misunderstanding on our part of the word apostasy, do you think that has contributed to a sort of fatalistic attitude in the church that our culture is destined to fall away? people are destined to stop going to churches. When we see the decline of churches across the country and we see churches closing their doors, hundreds of them every year, and we just give up and say, well, scripture says that's gonna happen. There's nothing we can do about it. You think it, our misunderstanding of that verse has contributed to an attitude where we don't bother trying anymore? Well, no, because uh, I read a doctoral dissertation from Dallas by a guy named Glenn Campbell from the 50s. I don't think it was the one from Arkansas, but uh, and he shows that 
the New Testament emphasis on apostasy is the second most frequently mentioned topic in the Bible, New Testament rather, statistically. So other, whether you take that verse or not uh, to refer to the falling away or, or the rapture like I do, uh, there's a lot about warnings about apostasy, especially the later you get in the canon of the New Testament. The last, you know, the pastoral epistles are totally focused. There's over 50 statements uh, relating to continue with the word of God, et cetera, and all this don't fall away and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, all I'm saying is that historically the word apostasia was uh, translated by Jerome to mean departure. That's the core meaning of the word. And, and when you have a core meaning, it, it's a term that will fit in any of the different nuances of a, uh, of a word. And so all of the English translations translated at departure up until the Douay, the Catholic, which wanted it to refer to the Protestant Reformation. I, and they, I forget the term that they use there. I don't have my stuff in front of me. And the King James was the first to change that translation tradition, you see. And they took and transliterated the word and created the English word apostasy, you see, which had never been created before in the 1611 edition. They did the same thing with baptism. They didn't want to offend one-third of the translators who did not believe it was immerse or dip. That's really would be the right translation. They created the word baptism, uh, which the, the Greek word is baptizo. So they did some of that kind of stuff. And as a result, I think it's masked the meaning of 2 Thessalonians 2.3 uh, on that. Now, if you go to our website, pre-trib.org, we have, I don't know, maybe 2,000 articles. And just about everybody who's anybody in dispensationalism has given our, uh, presentations at our study group over the year. I have personally over 800 articles on that website myself. And we deal with these issues on that website and we have a search engine and all that kind of stuff and you can do searches and find those articles that talk about that kind of stuff and we have a number of articles you know that talk about uh, taking second Thessalonians 2 3 to refer to the rapture yeah when you say to Tommy that like uh I know like Andy Woods has done a lot of work like right. his, his, part of his question was like re, for, for further research Wayne, like, and, Wayne House Wayne has done House, the most yeah. yeah yeah he's I think it's I think it's in the book when the trumpet sounds yeah Wayne House has a lot of he has a big chapter on that particular yes. issue yeah so that, that was just addressing he was saying, well what further research can I do obviously the website you mentioned right. Andy Woods Wayne House they've done a lot of research on it and if you don't take if you conclude that that's not the best explanation of that one one particular word then there are a lot of other things to be said that uh, take it out of the idea that uh, you have to have the apostasy before the rapture okay first place doesn't say it's before the rapture it's before the day of the lord second place we're not talking about how you'll know when you're in the tribulation paul's dealing with this lie that has been said that the day of the lord has begun and so the best thing that he could say is no, it, it couldn't have begun because if it had begun, 
There would have been all these other things. He couldn't say a pre-tribulational rapture because that wasn't a term at that time, right? He couldn't even say the church won't be in the day of the Lord because, in my view, the millennial kingdom is a part of the day of the Lord. So he would have to explain that and go on. So he said exactly what needed to be said in that particular verse to, exp to explain it. Yeah. Further, let me just add that that term as a noun is only used twice in the Greek New Testament. And the other time it's used in it is Acts 21.21, where it says that they accuse Paul of teaching them to depart from the Mosaic law. And there it's anarthrous. It doesn't have the article. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3, it has the article, which makes it likely referring to an event, plus the problem is it has no antecedent. In other words, depart from the Mosaic law. It simply has the departure, see, which means that it has to refer to an event. And in the context, he's been talking about the rapture. Now, as a verb, that term is used 15 times in the Greek New Testament, and 12 to 15 times it refers to physical departure. For example, they arrested Jesus and departed from the Garden of Gethsemane, you see. So I uh, I fought that view for 10 years. Tim LaHaye was big on that view, and I fought it until I read a doctoral dissertation, um, actually a master's thesis in Dallas Seminary uh, that just went in depth on this and convinced me uh, of that view. All right, thank you. Next step. I was a student at Calvary Bible College for my undergrad uh, under Leslie Madison. May he rest in peace. Uh, he was known for making the statement uh, that seminaries in general are cesspools for liberal theology. And we're talking a lot today about how the seminaries are affecting this. And my question for you is, how can we as local church people really push the, the return to prophecy and the study of prophecy? What can we do instead of just saying, okay, those guys over there are destroying uh, biblical hermeneutic? Well, all three of you men have been in education, so this is all tied in as well. So, well, you could you could really support the good seminaries to start out with. That would yeah. be a good thing to do. Any you know of? <laughs> there is a plethora of new seminaries starting up. Like I said, I was at this conference three weeks ago up in Denton, and. Uh, most of those schools were not dispensational, but there are like seven brand new seminaries within the last 10 years. So what you're having is, I remember uh, in our church history class at Princeton lasted the longest, uh, 117 years before it finally went liberal in 1929. And uh, that's the record. And I'm a Dallas grad and they're gonna be 100 years old in 2004, and I don't want to get off on all the bad stuff I've heard coming out of that school, but it's, it's you know, as I like to say, water runs downhill, and you've got to fight to keep it from being that way, and that's why you, you have all of these, you know, you look at the beginning of the Ivy League schools, they kept starting new ones because the original ones went bad, you know, and all of these guys. And that's just the history of, uh, of the way things have always been. I would, I would say that oftentimes the, the way that it works in education systems is the, um, 
the graduates that are at the peak when it is doing its, its best often are the ones that send men later on and support it, whether it's by sending them in or sending in support and uh, funding it. Um, but what happens as those schools slide, they also have a public relations machine that continues to point back to the good old days and has all kinds of newsletters and, and all kinds of alumni events and says, we're, we're right where we are when you came, but they really aren't, so that you continue to send grandma's money to support grand, grandson to go to school. And, uh, and the only way that can continue to work is if you're not connected in better ways to know really what's happening at that school. Where are they theologically? What is actually being taught? And that means maybe not even contacting the schools, but maybe the graduates and, and talking to them, seeing what kind of quality, what kind of theology is coming out to find out if there is a slide. Because uh, as fundamentalists, we understand that uh, liberalism doesn't ever build anything, does it? it? It's like a cancer. It takes over its host. It destroys from inside. And then fundamentalism says we need to rebuild and start new because it has now compromised. And that's why we're seeing so many schools and Bible institutes and other things, because there is a constant need. If we can slow the progress, though, uh, the devil is at work. We don't think he's chained up, right? No, he's a roaring lion. Yeah, Elizabeth Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, refused to endow the school because, because of that very reason. And uh, I, I remember he wrote an article when I was a student there. I had it, I had it published in the school's uh, little newsletter thing about how he even predicted Dallas Seminary would one day go liberal. Wow. <laughs> if it lasted long enough. Yeah. But very interesting, and that's why he, he and that people from his era, he died in 1952, you know, did not believe that if God was going to provide for the school, uh, we don't want endowment, because, and, and now they're endowed and all this kind of stuff, and it's a whole other story. Yeah. And I think maybe a key for all of us that we can do easily is just be praying. Pray for these schools. Pray for God to move. Um, Southern Seminary is a great example of one that turned from liberalism back to a more conservative theology. So it is rare, but it can happen. And we know our God can do anything. And so prayer is definitely something we should do. Good question. Yeah, the, uh, the recent uh, trend for quite some time in hermeneutics has been on genre studies and particularly looking at the book of Revelation saying it's apocalyptic, therefore it can't be taken literally. Uh, as those who embrace literal, grammatical, uh, you know, historical hermeneutic, what should be kind of our attitude towards that idea in the genre studies? Yeah, what I, one thing I would say is Revelation is one of the few books that actually tells you it's a genre. It tells you it's a prophecy. So we're told that. And then I would also say, too, that the Revelation follows a pattern that's been taught already in the Old Testament and in earlier portions of the New Testament. If you read the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 24 to 27, you have day of the Lord, return of the Lord, kingdom. You read Zechariah 14, you have this tribulation period, and then the Lord returns, he's king over all the earth, Zechariah 14.9, then you have a kingdom. So you have tribulation, return of the Lord, kingdom. What happens when you get to the Olivet Discourse? <laughs> I think you have the day of the Lord discussed in 
Matthew 24, you have this awful time of tribulation, involves Israel, the abomination of desolation. You get to verses 29 to 31. Guess what? Jesus comes again, and then what comes after that? The kingdom. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory with all of his angels, then he will sit on his glorious throne, the Davidic throne, and then the nations are brought before him, and then the sheep enter the kingdom. So the thing is, is like, because I know the, the, the apocalyptic card is often played on the book of Revelation as a reason not to take it literally or, 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 or seriously as contributing to the Bible storyline, but it's basically following a pattern that's already been established. So, of course, there's apocalyptic-like elements in the book of Revelation, but there, there's also an epistle section, chapters 2 to 3. There's, there, there's you, you know, who the authors. There's all kinds of differences, too, with traditional apocalyptic literature. So I think the key, the key for us is oftentimes, oftentimes the apocalyptic genre is used as a reason not to take it chronologically or literally. And we have to understand that it is prophecy. Yes, there's a lot of symbolism, but those symbols can be literally understood. And I really, really think the key is, is understanding that it is repeating the pattern that's already been established in the Olivet Discourse, in Isaiah 24 and 25, in Zechariah 14. So we, we, sh- we shouldn't be thrown off by that um, because, like I said, oftentimes it's used to, to try to get us to look at it from, from, from different angles that aren't uh, literal and, and sequential. Yeah, there's no other book in the world like the book of Revelation because no other book has something like the letters to the seven churches stuck into it. And so they can't really account for that aspect. Uh, but the book of Revelation has 38 symbols that are used, and that's supposedly, uh, you know, the what makes it apocalyptic and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, but half of those symbols they tell you right in the Book of Revelation, they're explained. The other half are given somewhere else in the Bible. So as I always like to say, you don't have to drop a tab of LSD and hallucinate to try to come up with the meaning of what those things, you just have to know the whole Bible, you see, and you have all of that, all of those ingredients and stuff come to fruition in the book of Revelation as it has, I think I mentioned this, and I can't remember from personal conversations versus what I said up here, uh, you know, that you have uh, between 650, 550 and 800 allusions to the Old Testament. And every book in the a prophet in the Old Testament, except for Jonah, has future eschatological statements in it. And the Book of Revelation kind of organizes all those prophecies scattered throughout, and even starting in Deuteronomy, uh, scattered throughout the Old Testament, and organizes it into a sequence by n- never quoting the Old Testament directly, but having all of these allusions or phrases or words from the Old Testament. And so it organizes the Old Testament into a sequential thing of uh, relating to the future. I think um, Robert Thomas's two volumes on Revelation at the, on the first volume, he addresses this issue of uh, apocalyptic literature. Yes. And so that's a good resource because I know that's a lot to take right now, but there's something you can just go back and read and, and think through that. So I got one more question, Gary. Okay. Uh, Dr. Ice, I might have misunderstood you last night, so I want a clarity. I've never seen a definition of the rapture that you gave last night that seemed to imply 
it was only the living saints that would be translated. Do you not believe that dead in Christ will be resurrected and translated at that time? Yeah, I guess maybe I didn't make it clear enough. I said that that's going to happen in conjunction with the rapture. But the rapture is only for living people who uh, are snatched up without dying. Obviously, anybody in the church age who's died is going to be resurrected in conjunction with the rapture. Okay. But the rapture is what? People who are alive. But the dead dead have been resurrected. In conjunction with that, yes. That's fine. Yes, that's right. I thought I said that, but you know. (laughs) Well, I want to thank our panel. This has been a great discussion, and I know we could probably do this for a lot longer, but um, we have uh, a schedule to keep to. And uh, we have some great time in the Word tonight with Mike Block, and then uh, tomorrow night we'll have with Dr. Pettigrew. And so we'll have some more great teaching on eschatology. We have some um, seminars, things going on throughout the day. Right now we're going to have a a break, and uh, we want to give you some time to enjoy that. Um, I don't know how many of you know this, but we do have a... um, uh, set when we have our coffee breaks, there is a. Uh, I know coffee is important. It's there's two levels down below. There is a level where the coffee break stuff is, as well as up here. And make sure you visit our displayers on the lower level. It's easy for us just to stay up here. Make sure you go down there and see them as well. Dr. Pedigree, would you close our time with prayer? Thanks. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God and its clarity. Um, We thank you, Lord, for your coming kingdom. We pray daily, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of the rapture and the resurrection and all that hope that you give to us that encourages us in the midst of uh, declining cultural situations. So we pray that you'd use our time together today and throughout this week to be an honor to you and a blessing to one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.